welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations hosted by the National Constitution Center. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. Last Thursday, we hosted a program on what social media platforms are doing to tackle disinformation in the midst of the election and how that relates to the First Amendment. First, you'll hear intro remarks from Jan Newharth, chair and CEO of Freedom Forum. Next, Jeffrey Rosen was joined by a panel featuring David Hudson Jr., First Amendment Fellow at the Freedom Forum, Kate Klonick, a law professor who studied the Facebook Oversight Board, John Samples of the Cato Institute, who's also a member of the Oversight Board, and Nate Persley, co-director of the Stanford Program on Democracy and the Internet. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. And now it's my great pleasure to turn the mic over to my friend and colleague, Jan Newarth. Thank you, Jeffrey. And we are so pleased to be partnering with the National Constitution Center for this important program on what social media platforms are doing to tackle disinformation and foreign interference during this election season. I want to thank Jeffrey and his team at the Constitution Center for their work in putting tonight's panel together. The Freedom Forum's mission is to foster First Amendment freedoms for all. We work to raise awareness of First Amendment freedoms through education, advocacy, and action sharing the stories of Americans who have exercised their rights to ignite change. For nearly 30 years through our educational programs and initiatives, the Freedom Forum has used the First Amendment as a springboard to illuminate the challenges of democracy and the importance of making informed decisions in a diverse and demanding world. We hope tonight's program helps us highlight the importance of media literacy, the dangers of disinformation, and how to successfully authenticate and evaluate information from a variety of sources. The election is now just five days away and voting is the ultimate expression of petition, one of the five freedoms of the First Amendment. To learn more about this First Amendment freedom and to view some of the resources we offer about engaging in elections, please visit us at freedomforum.org forward slash petition. And now I'll hand it back to our moderator, Jeffrey Rosen. Thank you so much, Jan, and thank you and the Freedom Forum for all you have done to increase awareness and understanding of the First Amendment and the connection between our First Amendment freedoms and American democracy. It is crucial work and uh, very, very much appreciated. Thank you so much for joining us, David Hudson, Kate Klonick, Nate Persley, and John Samples. What a dream team and what an ideal group to discuss this crucially important question of what the platforms are doing to combat election disinformation. The topic could not be more timely. Just last week, uh, Facebook announced that it was taking more preventative measures to keep political candidates from using it to manipulate the election outcome and aftermath. The company now plans to prohibit all political and issue-based advertising after the polls close on November 3rd for an undetermined length of time. Uh, And in the Facebook joins uh, other social media companies, including Twitter, which banned all political ads from the service a year ago. And last month, Google said it too would ban all political and issue ads after election day. Nate, personally, you have been following these developments so closely. Please uh, summarize for our great viewers what the major platforms are doing with regard to the election and what you think about it. 
Well, thanks very much. And thank you uh, to the National Constitution Center for uh, hosting this. Uh, it's always, uh, I hope we can do this live sometime soon. Uh, so the platforms have learned a lot of lessons since 2016. And uh, given that there was widespread criticism then with respect to whether it's foreign intervention or political advertising or any number of other problems in 2016, they've, they've made a lot of changes uh, and they've been sort of trying to throw everything at the wall to see what sticks. Now, they've uh, it's no doubt not going to be enough uh, to get at, you know, pervasive disinformation or other kinds of problems that, that critics will allege. But um, here are the things that they've been doing that are different now than, say, four years ago. So the first is that there is more aggressive um, takedowns and demotion of vote suppressive content, whether it's uh, disinformation that deals with, say, wrong voting days, discouraging people to vote, uh, those kinds of um, messages that might lead people uh, not to vote or to fear uh, about voting. Then there's a whole suite of reforms that they've done on political advertising. You mentioned some of them, but first is that they, the Google and Facebook have come up with transparency regimes, ad archives, so that they can, um, uh, so you can look up what kind of ads have been put out there. Um, the, the ad libraries are actually quite different between uh, Facebook and Google and what kind of information they provide, but it's an effort to, pro to provide some transparency. But in addition to the disclosure and the, the transparency through political advertisements, there's also been some additional regulations. So you mentioned now the rules that all three platforms have come up with uh, to prevent uh, advertisements in the post-election period, because there's concern that that might foment um, sort of unrest and the like. Uh, Twitter, as you may know, banned political ads outright, um, or at least has, has tried to, so that uh, ads on um, for candidates, at least, are not allowed on the platform uh, and have been for most of this have not been for most of this year. Um, in addition, Facebook took an extraordinary move to ban new ads in the last seven days before the election, so that while you could have last week you could have come up with a new ad if you were an approved uh, advertiser, verified advertiser. Um, now Facebook will not allow you to come up with a new ad um, um, in this seven days before the election. Um, so in addition to, to all of that with, with advertising, other restrictions on, pay, on, on organic content have also come in to play. So mentioned about false claims of victory through, um, through paid communication, but it's also going to apply to organic uh, content as well, where they will either be taking down or labeling and demoting uh, false claims of victory on election day uh, or, or sort of precipitous claims of victory. Um, and a lot of this is, is also uh, dovetailing with work that they've done to try to diminish the um, importance of some of this disinformation by building these voting information centers. And so if you look at Facebook and and um, you'll see that there's this repository of information that they, they put out there um, and, and they've been putting for the last two months, they've been putting at the top of people's feeds reminders on how to vote, on um, mail balloting and all kinds of other things. On election night, that will switch and it will become more of a repository for authoritative election results to try to mute the effect of any disinformation that will be coming from unofficial or official sources. Wow, thank you for that extremely comprehensive and helpful summary. You've given us a lot to discuss. 
Kate, uh, Nate just mentioned a, a series of steps ranging from disclosure, transparency in the forms of ad archives, these new moves about political ads, and it's striking how some of them, as he said, are coming just in the past couple of weeks, uh, and now uh, in Facebook's case, just apply to new ads. And then these uh, restrictions on false claims of victory, either paid or organic communication. You you followed all the companies so closely, you wrote a path-breaking article for the Yale Law Journal about content moderation of what strikes you about some of these late breaking developments and what additional context can you place on what the platforms are doing? Yeah, well, they, they what's interesting is how even though the the stakes are changing so much, I have heard the platforms kind of clinging to a familiar language. So um, even though um, so I'm going to give the example of Holocaust denial, which is a um, is an example that um, Mark Zuckerberg himself, who is Jewish, like has repeatedly allowed on his platform, despite all of these kind of the clamorings of ADA, uh, Anti-Defamation League and all of these other types of um, anti-hate speech groups that want this type of thing to come down, saying that it's in the service of free speech. And what you see all of a sudden in like the decision from Facebook to decide to suddenly issue a new policy around um, Holocaust denial is the language of I decide like we decided that the safety concerns of like of the users had finally outweighed the concerns for voice that like we thought that we you know that we had to worry about before and you can query how how authentic that statement is um you know, there is there is certainly something to be said for the fact that this is a moment in time in which the the pressures are incredibly intense on all of these questions around speech, at, such as to like create new balances to the equities. But there's also the possibility that like suddenly just like these are some low hanging fruit that Facebook's been wanting to get rid of and kind of address for a while. And they see an opportunity to do it in this moment and garner some goodwill. Um, and so it's unclear how all of this is going to kind of end up uh, fleshing itself out. The The debate over political ads that played out in the fall of 2019, and now we are like, here we are a year later, but that entire debate in which Jack Dorsey famously, after Mark Zuckerberg refused to ban political ads on the site or fact check political ads on the site, I should say, um, Jack Dorsey, you know, issued that statement about basically saying like, well, we're just going to ban all t- like ads, like political ads on Twitter. There's also a lot more behind that statement. Uh, it was issued right before the Facebook's earnings reports. Twitter has a, a like a tiny fraction, maybe a tenth of the of the revenue that Facebook has from political ads. In fact, political ads on Facebook are credited with like the 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 resurgence of or the ability for a lot of smaller down ticket candidates to stage. Um, uh, grassroots campaigns from small donors um, and fund their campaigns and get notoriety without having to pay um, the big machine politics kind of thing. And so there were a lot of considerations that Facebook really had to weigh in going into the elections that were a lot more complicated than just, well, let's ban ads. For Jack Dorsey, that wasn't a big deal. There it just aren't simply aren't that many political ads on Twitter. Um, and, uh, you know, for Facebook, it was a, a much larger consideration that had much larger implications. Uh, and 
They're just trying to draw some bright lines so that they don't have to worry about certain types of content and they can say yes, no, yes, no, and keep going. And that's like the necessity of doing this at scale. Thanks for all of that great context. You and Nate did a phenomenal We the People podcast nearly a year ago about the Facebook, Twitter, uh, different decisions about political ads. And you've just reminded us that there's a lot going on behind the Facebook's calculations and you help us understand why it wasn't until just before the election that Facebook made the decision that it recently did. Um, John uh, Samples, you serve on the Facebook advisory board. That board is not centrally tasked with election-related decisions. It, it may be reviewing content takedowns down the line. But tell us what, if anything, uh, that Facebook board is doing that's relevant to election-related decisions. And I'll just um, introduce right now Mark Winkleman's good question. He says, well, I applaud what Facebook has done. How is it able to get around the First Amendment with this? Of course, Facebook is a private company. It isn't formally bound by the First Amendment. But I think Mark is asking, to what degree is Facebook uh, maintaining Mark Zuckerberg's stated commitment to First Amendment values in its recent decisions to take down uh, political ads? Right, Jeff. This all begins with the fact that the First Amendment doesn't apply to Facebook as a private firm. And as a private firm, I think they have their reasons, business reasons and others to uh, take down a lot of content. The content would drive users away or whatever. However, at the same time, and this is where Kate's uh, work and scholarship, I think, really comes in. Early on, she was suggesting due process. We have to have something more of the rule of law to make this a legitimate process. And that's uh, then you have a two and a half year project uh, that Nate was part of, too, of of um, setting up this board. And our, our job is basically to, to look at uh, what uh, Facebook does and basically, uh, I, I don't say censor because only the government can censor, but they essentially remove content from the site or they reduce the breadth of it. Our job is to decide whether that's uh, according to Facebook standards. Uh, the ideas are Facebook values, Facebook community standards, increasingly parts of international law, which have some uh, aspects that, that look a lot like the First Amendment. So essentially, we are a kind of court that will hear cases and pass judgment. And Facebook has agreed to be bound by what we do in those cases. So if we tell them that they have to put something back up uh, or eventually take something down, they will do it. Uh, and they may apply it more broadly, too, depending on the, uh, the situation. So we're kind of, uh, and I should say also, it's true Facebook set up the board, but it's a kind of uh, really complicated legal uh, framework involving a trust that really does make, I think, an, as independent as uh, an institution can be of its originator. And so I, independence of the board, I think, will be an important issue. Uh, and I think it will be not an issue, but it will be something that is actually very good for us at the board. The other thing I would say is our charter uh, and bylaws enable us to uh, enable Facebook to ask us about policy questions, and then we can give advice. Now, Facebook is bound to follow the case decisions. They're not bound to follow the policy advice. They could have, uh, for example, asked us about the uh, political ads policy, and we could have given them. They didn't in this case, but down the line with elections, they may well do that. I think our role will really be, though, secondary, not at the moment of the election, but to, to look back later after the battle is over, as it were, and uh, decide whether actually Facebook fit 
acted within its own rules uh, as they build them up over time. That'll be our role. So, and then we'll go forward for the next election. You'll have maybe I would expect more constraints on, particularly if Facebook makes mistakes, more constraints on that ability, which is very powerful uh, to take down speech during an electoral period. That's it's pretty incredible power. Uh, thank you very much for that uh, insight into the Facebook board. I, I know our listeners and I will have more uh, questions about it. That idea of issuing advisory opinions about policy is really fascinating. And um, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll look forward to learning more uh, soon. Uh, as you um, hear these moves that the platforms are taking, uh, David Hudson, uh, do they strike you as adequate to address the central question identified in the 2016 election that uh, agents of the Russian government, according to bipartisan studies, purchased a significant amount of digital advertising during the election and Facebook's own investigation, um, as well as uh, others, uh, led it to spend uh, more than $5 billion. Mark Zuckerberg said it was more than Facebook's initial capitalization on election-related security, as well as to prevent this kind of disinformation. So kind of review what you've heard so far and, and tell us if you think it's adequate or not. Well, I certainly think they're all very positive steps. I think in having a community oversight board that looks at these troubling issues and the, and the definitive problems of disinformation, uh, fake news and other problems online, uh, I certainly think these are positive steps. I think the key question is we'll have to sort of take a wait and see attitude because we simply don't know uh, the sheer amount of disinformation that may, uh, that may flood the social media platforms. I, I think what a lot of us in the First Amendment community are hoping for uh, is that all of these measures will be taken in accordance with traditional First Amendment norms as best as possible. Um, so, for example, you know, you, you wrote the great uh, biography of Justice Lewis Brandeis, right? In uh, one of Brandeis's most famous comments was from Whitney v. California in 1927, right? If there be time to expose through discussion the falsehood and fallacies, to avert the evils by the processes of education, the remedy to be applied is more speech, not enforced silence, right? And that's the genesis of the so-called counterspeech doctrine. Uh, there is no categorical exception for false speech. The United States Supreme Court made that clear in Alvarez versus United States in 2012, right? So we want to make sure that these new governors, as Professor Klonick has written so beautifully in her Harvard Law Review piece and the Yale Law Journal piece, are uh, acting according to First Amendment norms, that they uh, don't just take down information that they don't like, uh, that they don't engage in blatant censorship, that they don't, that they don't engage in um, viewpoint discrimination, that there's not any sort of tilting of the marketplace, right? Because ultimately, what's the reason why we have uh, the First Amendment? Why do we protect free speech so much in society? Because it's inextricably intertwined with freedom of thought. And at the end of the day, um, we want people to make their own decisions as to, as to what uh, content they wish to view and what content they wish to accept. But uh, to answer your question directly, I think these are all very positive steps and I'm very encouraged by uh, a lot of the people that they have 
uh, participating in these in, in these steps. Thank you for all that. Thank you for quoting those uh, beautiful words of Justice Brandeis. As long as there be time enough for deliberation, the best response to evil counsels is good ones. Nate, you've uh, discussed whether Brandeis's vision still applies in an age of warp speed communication, where disinformation can travel faster than efforts to combat it. Um, for this round, I'd, I'd like to ask whether you think what the platforms are doing is adequate or having studied the question deeply and in fact written with Alex Stamos an important report on the 2016 disinformation, um, are there other things you think they should be doing or other laws that you think should be passed to address the problem of election disinformation? Well, I think there's a lot that could be done, but let me let me start by taking, I think, a different perspective on this as to whether the First Amendment answers this question, right, which is that these private companies are not, even though we call them as having the public square, they are not a public square, all right? And it's not just that they are private companies that themselves have First Amendment rights, so they can make decisions about what content is on their platform, but it's because what they do is organize information. And the most important power that Facebook, Google, and Twitter have is that they decide what goes at the top and what goes at the bottom, whether it's the top of the newsfeed or top of the search results or YouTube recommendations and the like. And those decisions are very different than ones that we normally make when you're talking about government uh, restriction of private speech. And so the, um, the decisions that are made, every uh, uh, community standard that these companies have for speech on the platform would violate the First Amendment if it was legislated by government. That's true about obscenity. That's true about hate speech. It's true about uh, some of the disinformation stuff. Um, and, and we don't think, for example, that like Citizens United should apply to Facebook, right? Should that they should then uh, have to, um, you know, run any advertisement from what, from any corporation, for example. They have lots of dis, uh, uh, rules on this as to what types of speech is allowed. Now, where then the the question is, well, what from the First Amendment might be useful in trying to rein in the platforms to to set appropriate ground rules? And we might say that look, you know, political neutrality and and avoiding viewpoint discrimination within certain bounds is important. But we can't they, they can't just sort of apply the First Amendment because the the technology, the product itself, is not uh, geared to that. All right, so that that's just the groundwork. Then on what else can be done when it comes to disinformation? I, I let me let me uh, punt a little bit on that in a particular way, which is that we do not have a sense of the the scale of the problem yet. Okay, and at what what, what whichever problem we're talking about online. And so what I've been trying to work on for the last three four years is really trying to open these companies up to greater transparency so that we can figure out how much disinformation is on their platform, who is receiving it, what they're doing about it, whether there is political bias in their takedowns and the like. And I think the first step to try to address this problem is to find out a lot more about what's going on under the hood of these companies. That last comment addresses to some degree Craig Dimitri's question, what level and sophistication of attacks are Russia, China, and Iran currently using to sow disinformation and discourse, and why do they believe it serves their interests? Nate, you said we really don't fully understand the scale of the problem, and you made a very important intervention expressing uh, doubt that traditional First Amendment standards can or should apply, and instead recommending standards like uh, political neutrality and lack of viewpoint discrimination. Kate, um, yesterday, to confirm the incredible timeliness of, of this panel, uh, there was a yet another hearing in Congress 
uh, with the heads of the platforms, Mark uh, Zuckerberg's and, and his colleagues from uh, Google and Twitter. And it was supposed to be about Section 230 liability. And that sounds very uh, technical, except everyone who's watching knows, because you're also well-informed, that 230 immunizes platforms from illegal content they host on their platforms. Uh, uh, on their platforms. Um, in the end, the hearing ended up not being so much about 230 liability, but conservatives were attacking Twitter for uh, labeling President Trump's tweets, and, and, and d- Democrats were um, saying that they should do more to combat false claims of victory. Um, but you've studied this question that Nate just flagged so closely. Sh- you know, should the platforms be bound? Should 230 be changed? Um, and uh, one of our questioners asks about that as well. So uh, should it be changed? If so, how? And um, what more do you think the platforms could be doing to combat election disinformation? Yeah, so I want to kind of, so first of all, Jeff, I didn't, I forgot, I usually do this whenever I talk to you, but I usually credit you with turning me on to this very topic in the first place, because you wrote your pieces in 2012 that were in, um, and Wired and in the New York Times Magazine that were pr- like way ahead of their time and, uh, like, and established and really kind of flagged this issue for anyone who's paying attention. Um, and it was, uh, I, you know, I've, you know, I built my, a lot of like what I was trying to do and the, the, the vision that I saw for this field, like, and it really is a field now because it's not only today that's timely. Literally I do these three to every three days and they're always timely because something is blowing up in the online and the online speech, uh, in the online speech field. But, um, so David was mentioning to, to, to just relate to the quick question about like first amendment stuff that, um, Nate and David were kind of tossing around. So I love the term free speech or First Amendment norms because I actually think that it encapsulates like a, um, from a social norms perspective, it encapsulates an, an ethos um, around kind of an entitlement to the right that is not purely captured in freedom of expression. Um, that being said, uh, I wrote my entire, the Harvard piece that you like, David, I wrote it and, uh, had first amendment norms in there. And Robert Post was like, do not write this, like, like slashed it out of the whole thing. It was like, put in freedom, freedom, like, like free expression norms. I was like, okay, fine. Um, but Later, a couple of years later, you had Mark Zuckerberg take the stage at Georgetown University and give an address on literally New York Times v. Sullivan and the uh, and the entirety of and Brandenburg and like the, like the like of a First Amendment doctrine through his lens of what he thought that these cases meant for better or for worse. And his cultural understanding or his layman's understanding of the First Amendment doctrine had created its own set of social norms that he, of course, was like filtering down into his company. And so it really was First Amendment norms to 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 an extent. So I, I want to give you a little bit of credit there to Nate's like very to like Nate's point, though, of course, there's no legal cachet there. There's nothing for the First Amendment in these private companies. They're not the public square. At the very best, I think it's taken me five years of empirical work to come around to kind of a formulation of I'm starting to think of them at best as public accommodations. If we think of them in in in, in terms of a way that we would want to possibly construct um, regulation around speech um, about them, uh, but I just I think that the 
point that, you know, you kind of end up with uh, that Jeff kind of like that finished and touched on and asked me to to like kind of weigh in on is that like, how are these companies eventually going to kind of be constructing these internal structures and then foisting them on other people and then not getting some type of accountability in return? And how is that all going to happen? Um, to like, you have to kind of, just as you have to interrogate what first the first amendment means and free expression really means and like what you mean when you say that, because words are not simply words. I think that you have to really ask why you want to reg why you want the government, why people keep calling for government regulation of these companies. And as I am not in any way opposed to government regulation as an identity in any way or anything else. I just kind of actually want to know do you like if that's the most effective means of reaching whatever it is about these platforms and about this moment in time and this very uncomfortable um, adjustment period we're having with technology and our human rights, that we're trying to reach towards a very comfortable and understandable type of accountability of reaching back to government and being like, government can help us, government can do something. But if we remember why it is that we empowered these private companies with the abilities that we did and protected them so much with the first amendment, we get to like, we, you get to the answer of like, maybe the government is exactly not the entity that we want to like, to, to answer and solve our speech problems for. So what is it that we're really asking for? At the end of the day, I think what we're really asking for is accountability and some type of participatory feeling in the structure that is controlling our basic human rights of freedom of expression, if you can build that into the system in a retroactive way, as I kind of hope and I faintly hope and am optimistic the oversight board and like which John is on can maybe do, that is maybe a way forward that can align with regulation or forestall it. Thank you for that really rich and sophisticated answer um, and for flagging that norms, uh, in your view, are a better word than First Amendment law and for arguing for a more contextual approach that take into account these competing considerations. And one of our attendees says, thank you for your answers, Kate. Um, John, there's a question about the Facebook board, um, which many of our listeners are interested in. and But before I do that, I should say several people have asked, what is disinformation? Um, if you can't define that, then what's why are we having this panel? I live in Montgomery County. County uh, Montgomery County sent a voter letter to voters telling them their polling place. Later, they sent letters listing the wrong polling place. So is it that kind of factual disinformation or not? And I, um, you might want to address what you think disinformation is. We, we, we've also talked about um, false claims of victory um, before there's a definitive tally, which all of the platforms said they won't cover. Um, but uh, I'll set the question up to you by asking whether the Facebook board has the ability to um, make the takedown transparent, Mike Liverwright asks, by showing the Facebook rule that is applied when it was established and the details of the content that was taken down or priority prioritized. And then just because I'm really uh, interested, I'm going to ask you, 
as a member of the Facebook board, would, are you inclined, based on your past writings, to apply a version of American First Amendment standards, um, which would protect hate speech and might also allow uh, political ads to run right up to and after an election? So let me drop back for a moment and then get to that and also get to the disinformation issue uh, and suggest one way. I'm not sure how this is go going to go, but one way it might go. Keep in mind, beyond all the, the issues, I, obviously, I've been a strong supporter of the First Amendment. But keep in mind, apart from all the other issues, when you think about the Facebook community, that is Facebook users, you're talking about 3 billion people. And you're, in the United States, there's about uh, 200 million users uh, estimated. So uh, it's a very small proportion of the overall user, user base of Facebook. Now, I think it would be great if they all accepted the First Amendment, and I think, you know, probably the world would be a better place, but they might not do that. So you need to go to them with a kind of uh, something that, from their point of view, you can appeal to them. And I think that's not contrary to first what may be called First Amendment values. And here's how this might work. On the one hand, there's Facebook. Remember, Facebook values, community standards, and international law are our three foundations, not the Constitution, but those three things. Now, as it happens, Facebook values, if you look at the charter of the board or at their mission statement, they say that voice, speech, expression is, quote, a paramount value. Now, what paramount means is comes before all else. It's the most important value. So if we take that uh, as a both something that we are supposed to be enforcing and a statement of Facebook's values. That's a beginning point for thinking about a strong and perhaps uh, over, you know, weighted, some weight, more weight attached to the value of voice. Second thing I would turn to is international human rights law, which is now being widely discussed. If you look at Article 19 of the International Commission of Civil and Political Rights, uh, what you find is some, a statement that is very similar to the First Amendment that is declared, and the United States has uh, ratified that, so has many other countries throughout the world. Uh, there's some reservations and so on, but generally speaking, it's accepted. So what I'm saying is, in international human rights law, there's something like the First Amendment, and more importantly, or as important, there is also in Article 19 something like language that we talk about here in the United States as strict scrutiny. That is, any kind of time you want to limit speech under international law, you have to apply three tests to it, one of which is a typical vagueness test that we're accustomed to here in the United States in First Amendment jurisprudence. So that brings us back to disinformation. You mentioned, how do we define it? We're having discussions about how to define it. I haven't seen any cases, but to me, that's a point of uh, looking closely at regulations, looking closely at takedowns based on disinformation, because if people cannot predict beforehand, if we don't know what it is, uh, there are certainly bad actors that know what they're doing, and this is one of the debates, but if there's a vagueness about it, uh, there's a legality issue, and under both international law and I would think under Facebook rules also, there's a question whether that could be sustained. But my point being, to reach this larger audience to get legitimacy uh, under it, there are other ways to go than just talk about the First Amendment, which is great in itself. But there's aspects out there that have a larger claim on people. 
And I believe those might be brought into the Facebook on a kind of common law basis where we go through decisions and we say, hey, this seems to be what, something that is applicable here. And you end up with a really syncretic kind of law for the uh, oversight board for Facebook and maybe beyond that, that is really pretty responsive to the First Amendment. That's what I would think is certainly possible. Um, thank you very much for answering all that so thoughtfully. David, uh, our friend and colleague, Gene Polanyski from the Freedom Forum asks, how close are we, if at all, to declaring these dominant tech companies to be a kind of public utility, private operations seen as so crucial to society that the public must have a role in policy development and implementation accountability with regard to these policies, Gene's question is incredibly salient. The week after, I guess, uh, the Justice Department filed its antitrust suit against Google, uh, the Justice Department has indicated a similar suit against Facebook might possibly be forthcoming. We just podcasted on this yesterday. I, I guess it's publishing tonight uh, with Tim Wu and Adam White. Um, but this that's the opposite uh, side of the spectrum from a First Amendment normist perspective. Gene asks, should the platforms be regulated as public utilities, what's your answer to Gene? Yeah, I mean, there's some surface appeal to that, right? So, you know, you know, somebody could say, well, does it make sense under our constitutional scheme for a small rural government official to be subject to constitutional constraints and a massive billion dollar company that has power to restrict far more speech than any small governmental entity to not be? Um, however, I, I tend to agree with Nathaniel um, that these these are private companies um, that they do have the First Amendment right to editorial discretion. Like if we look at Tornillo versus Miami Herald in 1974, right? Um, there's a similar analogy to draw with newspapers, right? We don't want the government dictating what newspapers can print. They don't have to give equal time to different political candidates. Uh, so we want to have uh, we want to have freedom there. I, th I think what the, the problem is in, in some instances is that there's not been a consistent application of takedown policies in the past. So let me give you just a couple anecdotal examples uh, from some of my friends. So I had a friend who posted a video of Malcolm X um, and they got placed in Facebook jail as it, it's sometimes normally called because they said that the Malcolm X video was hate speech. Well, I don't think the Malcolm X video even remotely approached hate speech. It didn't. It was very self-empowering. Um, it had some themes of, of African-American nationalism, but it certainly didn't approach any definition of hate speech. I had another individual who was placed in Facebook jail because they posted a picture of Melania Trump uh, that was deemed to be disrespectful, I suppose. So in the past, there, there's been very... Uh, selective, uneven application of these principles, and the decisions have sometimes been confounding. Um, but that does not lead me to think some of the uh, Justice Kennedy's language in Packingham v. North Carolina in 2017, notwithstanding what Justice Leto referred to as undisciplined dicta, right? I mean, uh, there is the seminal, and, and I do recognize the state action doctrine itself has very racist roots. If we look at the civil rights cases in 1883, I don't think anyone can plausibly deny that. Uh, but there's a very strong reason to have the state action doctrine, and there's a significant difference between a government official and a private company. Um, and 
uh, I essentially agree with with Kate um, that to allow the government to step in and regulate, I think, uh, may well pose far greater problems. Um, and it's, I think it's a very encouraging sign that these companies are taking these steps uh, to try to have some sort of more consistent standards as to how they deal with different types of content. Thank you for all of that. Thank you for citing the Packingham case, which, which we'll post in the chat box. That was a case involving a North Carolina law prohibiting registered sex offenders from accessing various websites. And the court, for Justice Kennedy, said that it was too broad that to be valid under the First Amendment, a content-neutral regulation of speech has to be narrowly tailored and can burden more speech than necessary. Okay, Nate, we've got so much to pack into what may be our final round, uh, including many questions about election problems like how to ensure that there are enough drop boxes for ballots in Harris County, which had one drop box for 4 million voters, according to an anonymous attendee. Among your many important uh, projects related to elections, you're involved with the Stanford MIT Healthy Elections Project, which is examining issues like healthy polling places, mail voting, and tools. Can you relate uh, what concrete problems you and the Stanford MIT project are concerned about on election day with anything the platforms could do to address those problems? And, you know, just to get down to brass tacks, what are you most concerned about when it comes to the platforms and the elections uh, next week? Well, uh, we have a sort of sister project that uh, is run by my colleague Alex Damos, former head of security at Facebook, called the Election Integrity Partnership, which you can look at at eipartnership.net, which is doing investigations of sort of organized disinformation activities. And so I am most worried from the disinformation side in the post-election period, because if it is a close election and if um, the networks are reluctant to call the victor, that's an opportunity for foreign and domestic actors to propagate the information ecosystem with a lot of um, misinformation. And so that that is that is something that's cheap my concern. If I, if I could, though, I just want to... Uh, make sure I put a marker down for government regulation uh, in this area with with the the platforms. There are certain things that government should be doing with the platforms, and some of the questioners raised this, and that has to do with um, antitrust and thinking about the power of the, these platforms and what. Um, even if they're not public utilities, how we should think about their control of the information environment. Now, these some of these uh, these interventions are not necessarily speech restrictions. Um, uh, so it's not necessarily like having a, a White House office of disinformation policy or something like that. But, um, for example, forcing Facebook and Twitter and others to allow other firms to um, basically allow you to choose your own moderation system to try to have um, uh, to break up that monopoly that they have over the control of the organization of your newsfeed and the like. That's something that could happen. Um, political advertising regulation. I think we have to, I think the platforms actually want more regulation on this in order to um, uh, bring us into the 21st century when it comes to online ads. Um, Obviously, there's there's other areas dealing with privacy and transparency that also will sh not just shed light on what's happening in um, in the speech moderation practices, but also um, uh, potentially have an effect on on those practices. And I think we do need industry organizations. We need more things like the oversight board and and similar ones in other firms or even a macro 
uh, board that that could be developed. Um, and I'll say one thing, which is that even if we don't regulate them, the Europeans will. <laughs> and so there, there's going to be uh, regulation of these platforms and their policies on disinformation. And if one thing we learned from GDPR, the German or the uh, the, the European privacy law is that sometimes um, Brussels can have effects here. And so I think we need to think about what the American regulation should be of these platforms also. Many thanks uh, for all of that and for calling our attention to the Election Integrity Project. Kate, why don't we hone in on this very concrete uh, concern that Nate has identified, the danger that if the election is close and both sides are claiming victory, then uh, disinformation from abroad, uh, as well as uh, domestically, might create chaos about what's going on. Um, Some of the platforms are saying they're responding to this by elevating reliable news sources like the AP. I think Facebook uh, said at the hearing that it was going to do something like that. Is that adequate? Are you concerned about this problem? And are the platforms even equipped to distinguish between true and false claims of victory since, as one of our questioners notes, um, you know, until the result is final, it would be just a political claim rather than something that could be deemed true or false. Um, so it's funny that you pose that question because it reminds me, it just like, like you, you asked that question. The only thing I could think of was like Dewey beats Truman and like the, like the picture, like holding up this, like the, like the, um, like the like maybe not the original certainly not the original but like kind of a, a paradigmatic uh, fake news moment uh, uh, and I think that there's I think that the that the I was actually just on the phone with um, a few people on the escalations team at Facebook yesterday asking how they're gearing up for this type of thing and the um, what I was hearing back very kind of concretely was that they. Um, were doing fact checking and they were prepared and what they were most worried about was not the ramp up to the election, but yes, in fact, the, the, the week or two after, which I'm sure is the same thing that Nate is hearing from the people that he's working with as well. Um, there's not like, like, let me just say that there's not a fantastic answer to fake news. And in fact, I would just point out that the recent kind of moment with the Hunter Biden emails and New York Post and all of the and everything that happened around that and Twitter and Facebook and Google all making different decisions around their fact checking boards to censor certain types of content were, in fact, kind of, in my opinion, um, very good examples of the shortcomings of fact checking boards. And the like and the epi- like the epistemological questions that are fundamentally at the core of a lot of these a lot of these um things that uh can't be answered by a fact checking board um and yet and i think that a lot of people who did policy at facebook knew that uh but the public clamored for fact-checking boards. And that was what they wanted. And that was what they wanted to see. And so they spent a lot of money, all of the platforms spent a lot, the major three platforms spent a lot of money creating these 
And I think that to, 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 to a limited extent, they like, they probably do catch some stuff around the margins and do a decent job, but there are really hard questions that you're never going to be able to put before a fact check checking board and going to get good answers. She's like, is Seinfeld true? Like is sign, like, I really don't like, I don't, is Seinfeld true? Like, what do you mean? Like, what is like, was it truly a show? Yes, it was. Was it a true depiction of life in New York? Maybe. But was it actually a person living in New York living there? Like, no, it was a fictional show that happened. Right. But like, this is a little bit like I'm trying to just complicate how these issues are just not, first of all, meant to be dealt with by private corporations whose leaders just happen to win the startup lottery and have no natural expertise or ability to deal with these types of difficult trade-offs. Um, and that like, they're questions that we've asked for all of time in humanity. We're just seeing them in a new valence. Thank you so much for flagging what you so rightly call the epistemological aspects where the, the, the nature of knowledge is indeed at stake when we try to figure out what is true in a political context that um, helps understand Andy Cannell's comment. This is an awesome list of experts, which it is indeed. So um, John, uh, you know, I, what, what about that claim that no fact-checking board or oversight board is equipped to decide questions of Political truth. Jack Dorsey did get into uh, get, got cr great criticism yesterday in Congress from presuming to have Twitter determine which of President Trump's uh, political claims were true or false, and kind of honing in on this scenario of both sides claiming victory before all the votes are counted. Um, <laughs> what do you think the platforms and uh, could or should do, if anything? So there's an intuition here, which is Mark Zuckerberg was once talking about fact-checking. He said in that contest, he said, you want to remove out-and-out -out hoaxes and conspiracy theories. So in his mind, he, he was thinking that the fact-checking was going to do that for you. I would say that as a business, that's his choice. But, you know, there's a big difference between, for example, with Joe, Joe Biden running for president, the question that is surely has an answer did the Obama stimulus of 2009 produce more benefits than it cost? Has a factual answer, but it is something that should be left to debate, to party activists, and to voters, right? The question, uh, let's see, about whether uh, aliens have been running the government for 50 years, and in fact, if you look under uh, the skin of people at the FBI, you find large lizards. Prove it's not true, John. Prove it's not true. <laughs> I saw this happen to one a person one time, a, a Stanford faculty member at Stanford responding to someone who maintained that the uh, 2001 attacks were an inside job. And so I don't want to go there because he had a very hard time. They were living in different <laughs> epistemological worlds. So I think uh, those two can be separated and need to be because if you go over the line, there's a crucial issue here, which is free speech and the First Amendment is founded on the idea that you can say things to people, you can say things that are wrong, that people can sort it out. That's Republican government in a way. And if you start taking away answers that sh or questions that should be debated or factual and uh, preventing people from getting it, then you really do have third, you know, external effects on the democracy, I think. I, I do see and worry, Jeff, uh, that 
we there's a tendency now to just assume none of this works and people have to be protected from information, right? Um, and maybe that's empirically, the faith of uh, free speech advocates is wrong empirically, but we've been going on this for a while and I think it's uh, we've got to stick with it for a while before we have a definite refutation because that's a crucial part of our society and our culture. Well, it, it certainly is. And um, uh, David, I think it, falls to you to have the last word. Um, and that's, uh, there's so much to ask you, but John indicates without arguing it strongly. So I'll just ask it, why not let a thousand flowers bloom, have an unregulated universe when it comes to elections, not presumed to ban the ads before and after, allow either side to claim victory and basically apply First Amendment um, standards, even though the companies are not formally bound to uh, do that. Um, And then after uh, answering that uh, question, why don't you sum up and leave our listeners with whatever thoughts you'd like in this completely fascinating and rich discussion? Well, I think we do need to do something. I mean, uh, we saw in 2016 that there was widespread outside influences on the electoral process. There were a lot of bots that were producing uh, stuff that was totally false. Um, I, I don't think the term disinformation was created um, for censorship purposes, right? I mean, there, there's just a lot of um, negative material out there um, that 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 could cause harm, right? And at the at the end of the day, um, we don't. I, I agree with the sense and what John said was beautiful, right? That, that, that and that, that's the whole point of like why we protect commercial speech, right? Back in 1977 or 76 in Virginia pharmacy, right? Is that we don't want to assume paternalistically that the government always knows what's best for people. On the other hand, look, there's a lot of harmful speech out there. There's a lot of hate speech. Um, there's a lot of pure disinformation. And so I, I applaud the efforts to try to come up with ways um, to combat that stuff. And, you know, part of it perhaps can be done by increasing digital literacy, literacy uh, across the board. I applaud the efforts to, uh, to, to empower people to become more informed and be able perhaps to, to tell and sort of do their own fact checking. Um, at the, at the end of the day, right, uh, this is the most participatory form of mass speech yet developed. I think that's what Judge Dalzell said back at the uh, three-judge federal district court opinion in, in uh, ACLU v. Reno that ultimately culminated in the Supreme Court's 1997 decision in Reno v. ACLU. Um, it, it is the uh, real uh, epitome or the, the zenith of First Amendment freedoms, right? We, we now have the ability as an average individual to reach a mass audience. Um, and with that, there's the amplification of all types of speech, right? Positive speech, negative speech, and everything in between. Um, at the end of the day, I really applaud um, the, the efforts that are being taken to try to identify speech that um, would qualify as disinformation. 
before thanking our amazing panelists for a, a really rich discussion, I want to end with some quotations from our audience because it shows how incredibly engaged you are, friends, as you've listened closely to us. Lauren uh, Roberts says, how do you draw the line between ob obviously objective and complex but objective? Maria de Los Angeles, fake news often has fake readers. And yes, it is epistemological and in a new valence. Wow, and so true. And Sarah Cunningham, in some ways, sums up the central issue that's led us to this complex place, and that has to do with the breakdown of the Enlightenment consensus about what facts are and the consensus that makes democracy possible. I see our panelists nodding. Friends, democracy may be imperiled, but public debate is not, because if we can have kinds of rich, engaged, deep, and deliberative discussions of the kind we're having tonight, where all of you have taken out an hour uh, right before the election uh, on a uh, evening to engage deeply with these fundamental questions about free speech and democracy, then there is hope for the future. And for that, I wanna thank Jan Neuwirth for her vision in suggesting this panel. So grateful for our collaboration with Freedom Forum. And let me thank you very sincerely indeed, Nate Persley, Kate Klonick, John Samples, David Hudson, for an extraordinarily illuminating contribution to public debate. Thank you all. Thanks to our friends. Have a good night. This episode was engineered by the National Constitution Center's AV team and produced by me, Jackie McDermott, along with Tanea Tauber and Lana Ulrich. This program was presented in partnership with the Freedom Forum. For more on the election, check out the National Constitution Center's election resources and programming, including podcast episodes, video lessons, and more, at constitutioncenter.org slash calendar slash election dash day dash programming. We'll include that link in our show notes. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center and join us back here next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.